Hi, this is Kara Swisher. For companies to succeed today, they need builders, and builders need tools that allow them to innovate. The problem is most cloud vendors don't offer the range of tools builders are looking for. Amazon Web Services is the leading cloud service provider giving builders the reliability and security they need. AWS pioneered cloud computing over 10 years ago to help any business from the smallest startups to the biggest global enterprises create their own applications and manage their workloads. By listening to what customers want, AWS is adding more features and services than any other cloud provider while consistently reducing prices. So if you'd rather focus on creating a business instead of an infrastructure, check out podcast.aws. Learn how AWS can help you build a better future today and let builders build. This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That's me. It's powered by Digital Media. That is a real company with a weird sounding name. I'm here with Scott Frank. Hello, straightforward Peter. name. Hi, Scott. <laughs> Thanks for joining. Thanks for having me. You do many things. You've written a book. We'll talk about that. You're making a cool Netflix show with Steven Soderbergh. You've made a couple of my favorite movies. Walk Among Tombstones is a recent one. Um, Out of Sight is one of my all-time favorite movies. Thank you. Should we go through your entire IMDb? We can, <laughs> we can do whatever you want. What's the best way to describe you? Writer, director, all of the above? I think all of the above. I'm directing more these days than I was before. So, so probably, I think going forward, I'll do a lot more writing and directing. So probably when you listen to this podcast, Scott's newest project that you can consume will be Logan. That's the the adult Wolverine movie. Yeah, right way to put it. Sure, hope so. <laughs> You're the writer for that one. Yes, yes, with Jim Mangold who directed it. So this is an R-rated think, superhero movie. Think about uh, a very hard R Paper Moon. <laughs> That's really what it is. That's great. Who's who is it? Is that a Fox film? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So do do they know you're making a? a they hard do. R paper God movie? bless them. We um, Jim and I worked on the last one. He directed the the one before, and we we tried to do something with that, and we got halfway. It was a different. Um, uh, we'll say leadership at Fox at the yep. time, and so we only got half of what we wanted to do in the last one. So when the leadership changed um, at the studio, we had a great conversation with them, and on this one, we were sort of able to do our unsuperhero superhero movie. This is what people have been trying to do. Well, they've done it in graphic novels for yes. thirty years now, right? Dark yes. Knight was sort of where it started. Yes, and then when it comes to turning these things into movies, they inevitably become movies that are made for younger people. Yes. And and that's most movies are made for younger yeah. people now as it as it happens. So is this the first R superhero? Is that uh, possible? no, um Deadpool. Deadpool, right. which I loved, is also I think R rated. So, right, 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 right. So this was and in the works. Great. This was in the works when Deadpool had come out. Yes. Because that sort of snapped yes. people's head back. Said, oh, you yes. can do this with a movie. Yes. Yes. We've been working on it a couple years before that. I think. And this is played that was played for laughs mostly. Yes. This is not. This is not. This, this is, is a very different tone than that movie. Although I happen to love Deadpool, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, movie. I, I liked it. Yeah. So this, but this is. There's no winking here. This is like no. This is a real person. There's a real stakes. He happens to have titanium claws and doesn't like superheroes and doesn't like the whole mythology around superheroes. And so we're not linking to other people in the Marvel universe. We're not doing any of that stuff. We're not calling back characters or, you know, there's not a, a, a scene in the end credits that's, you know, oh, you just foretelling something that's coming. You know, it's its own movie. It's a standalone movie. And um, 
just to go back to the one before this, what that was we, that one was called Wolverine, I think, and that was the one where it goes to Japan. Goes to Japan, and what we thought was really interesting was to have a superhero who is supposedly immortal with all these healing powers, and ten minutes in, let's take away all his powers and see he finally gets what he wants, which is to die, <laughs> and um, see what happens. And park him in Japan. It was a little like when. Harrison Ford was wounded in Witness, and he was there in Amish country. We thought we could have this interesting romance. Guy out of, and guy out of time. Guy out of, place. out of time and out of place, and he was in Hiroshima. It was kind of interesting. And so we were partially successful, I think. And on this one, we said, let's do where we're never talking about being a superhero. We're never talking about any of that stuff. And we'll tell an adult story about growing old about paying for your sins and about what it really means. And this is a man who's, who's certainly killed, maimed, injured a lot of people in his life and has been doing it for a very long time because he's lived a very long time. And now he's face-to-face with a very young version of himself. Superhero movies and their variants are kind of the lifeblood of Hollywood right now. Yes. These are big, expensive bets. They make a lot of money. If yes. they don't do well, studios have to take write-offs and acknowledge it in earnings calls. So when you tell the folks at Fox... Here's what I want to do with one of most your valuable pieces of IP, as they call it, in your business. Yes. <laughs> um, I want to make it not accessible to a big swath of the audience that loves comic book movies. You don't say it that way, I'm assuming. No. But that's what you're telling them. How's that go over? Well, you say you don't want to repeat yourself, and you're, the way to get people to show up is if they feel like it's something different, and maybe there's a whole other audience that you haven't tapped into yet that might be interested in this. The Peter Kafkas of the world. Well, for the Peter Kafkas of the world, and the Scott Franks, for that matter, because yeah. I don't really like superhero movies. And so, um, and I think that, that when they finally greenlit the movie, it was around the time of Deadpool. And so, even though we'd been working on it off and on before then, I think they saw, well... That's the kind of the few you have to evolve in some way. Right. So maybe one evolution to play with is to make it be a little deeper and a little darker, and quite honestly, a little simpler. It's because Deadpool simple has story. swearing and it's darker, yeah. but it's also very much a comic book movie, and it yes. brings in the characters yes. from the other franchises. This does not feel like a too. comic book yeah. movie. It really doesn't, except for the 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 powers he has and so on. It's not really played for that sort of tone. And I'd always wanted to write a James Bond movie where you meet him, he's in a bar, he's drunk, and he gets the shit beat out of him. And so Because he, he's just a guy. He's just a guy, a and he drank too many of those martinis, and there he is, and he says something he shouldn't, and he gets beat up by a bunch of soccer hooligans or something in, in Britain. And we did a version of that with this. That's great. I want to talk to you about Soderbergh and Netflix, and I want to talk to you about the book that I got to say I'm about 30 pages left. It's great. But let's let's go backwards. You've been doing this for a long time. I remember seeing Out of Sight in a really hot movie theater with no air conditioning in New York in 97 or 98, yeah. and that was not your first movie. I've been doing it almost I've been doing it 30 years. How'd now. you get into the, the movie business? I was very lucky. Uh, I went to school in Santa Barbara, UC Santa Barbara, and I came to L.A. to write scripts, and I'd written a script while so you were I was, that guy. I was that up, guy. I want to write scripts. I want to write scripts. Didn't know anybody in the movie business at all. And when I was a student at UCSB, I wrote a script called Little Man Tate. And I thought, that's going to be the script. I'm going to sell it for lots of money, and, um, and that'll be that. Nobody wanted a script about a little kid who went to college. And to be quite honest, it wasn't that good. It read like a bunch of skits about a kid who went to college. So I started rewriting it. I got a job bartending and worked at night and wrote during the day. And lo and behold, after a couple of years of that, I met 
somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody and I got my script to an agent and the agent got my script to the right person and within months I had an office on the Paramount lot when I was 24 years and this, old. Was that Jodie Foster? She ended up doing, yeah. the movie didn't get made for another five, six years after that. So, so you broke in the way that lots of people try to break in. Most of them don't succeed, but you show up, you do something that's not what you want to do, right. you bartend, and you try to get your script into the hands of someone who will eventually And I just make kept it. rewriting it over and over and over again. And yeah, and that's exactly what happened. And then you were in the and then once you've made something, right, or even been hired to work on something, you're kind of in the system for a while. Yeah, well, I was lucky because I was very lucky for lots of reasons. One, I happened to meet the right people. And um, I was, my struggle was all of two years. I mean, I literally, I was 24 when I had an office, you know, with a bunch of people at Paramount. It was kind of exciting. But when I was there, I met a woman named Lindsay Duran, who was a vice president of production. And she taught me how to write. I think I was an okay writer then, but she really taught me how to write. And the movie that I spent a long time on, I did a bad movie for Paramount, and go look it up, called Plain Clothes. Don't it's know. terrible. It's always on whenever I have the flu. <laughs> and I turn on the TV, there it is, for some reason. Who's in it? Arliss Howard, George Went from Cheers. It's a just... All right. They're all good. The, movie, the movie's just god-awful. Um, that was the first script I got paid to write for the studio. I did that and it took me a year or two to write. And... Um, took about 12 weeks to make a bad movie. But I went to, I, after that, I began writing a script called Dead Again. And Lindsay Duran was my executive and ultimately producer along with Sidney Pollack. And they taught me how to write scripts. And I was very lucky that I found her early on. And so I kind of got off on the right foot. I see a lot of young writers, depending on who you work for and what you're working on, it can go either way. And you, you broke through, probably your best known film, right, is Get Shorty. Later after that, yes, yeah. yes. Um, how, did, how did you get your hands on Get Shorty? The they offered me book? the book. It was just, I a was... a dream. Yeah, I was, somebody said, and I'd passed the first time. I had, I didn't want to write a book about Hollywood, and um, I'd had a horrible experience on a movie called Malice, which we won't have to talk about. And I was just mad at the business for whatever reason. And the producer, Stacy Scher and Danny DeVito and Michael Schamberg, they had this great company then called Jersey Films. I did a bunch of projects with them. They said, are you sure you don't want to do this? And I said, all right, I'll read it again. And Were I you read, an Elmore Leonard fan? I was a you big Elmore Leonard yeah. fan. And so I, but none of the movies had kind of worked. And he was famous for talking about how he hated all the movies. And so I was a little wary. So I read the book again, and I got to the part where the lone shark and the murderer are talking about how easy it is to write a script. And I thought, okay, this is a perfect thing for me to do right now. And then I jumped in, and it was, it was hard, though. That was a tough script to do. It took a couple years to kind of – I learned a lot on that one as well. That one's great. And then Out of Sight, another Elmore Leonard Came is, is a couple my, years later. One yeah. of the all-time greats. Yes. Thank you. weirdly underappreciated, I think. Yeah, no one saw it when it came out. It was a bomb. It actually didn't do well. It's, it's Jennifer Lopez's hands-down best performance, and it's George Clooney's probably best. Like, he's the most George Clooney and Steve Zahn is amazing yeah, he's in that. Great. Ving Rhames, they're all terrific. And, and Don Cheadle? Don Cheadle is amazing great, yeah. in that movie, and and um, Albert Brooks. It was a Go lot. Go watch of fun. this movie. Stop stop listening to this podcast. It's Go watch the, the, the most movie, fun I've ever had ever in the business. I thoroughly love that whole experience, and largely because Steven Soderbergh just was amazing, and we had a great time doing it together, and we really enjoyed it. And uh, but it was, those books are hard to adapt. And I remember the first time really? I met. Yeah, they're tough really? because they're they're all talk. 
and it's great talk, but the the plots, he'll introduce a character on page 80 who will suddenly become the main character. And even the ending of Get Shorty, which is very different than the than the movie, he uh, the character says endings something like, "Aren't they a bitch?" You know, uh-huh. he just doesn't he doesn't care. Shows you how little I know because I read those things and I think Elmer Leonard books and I love them and it goes, and they all seem like they're they're movies. They play out really well in my head and they're they're short. They all and, do seem like they're movies. And it's great dialogue. And I watch I read out of sight and I watch out of sight and it seems like you've lifted a lot of it from the movie. I'm like, this is not easy lifting, but there's got to be harder work. No, Maybe some of it's I'm easy wrong. lifting and some of it's very, and get shorty. Half of it is the book and half of it is new. And I don't want to be one of those screenwriters that trashes the books they adapt to make themselves look better. <laughs> those were great books. Yeah. They were really great books. And I took gobs of stuff from both of those books. But but they didn't work as a movie. The shape of them, the story wasn't an interesting movie. The book Out of Sight was more about her than him. But Karen she was Sisko. just sort of... Yeah, yeah, she was a great. She was a photograph he saw of a federal marshal, this woman in a Chanel suit, with a shotgun on the steps of the Dade County Courthouse, and he saw that in the news, and he wrote a book about her. But that is who she is at the beginning, and that kind of is who she is at the end of the book, where he is this guy full of regret, and you know the road not taken, and all that stuff. And it was great. It was more fun to write a movie about him with her, and get shorty the same thing. It becomes a lot about. Uh, the Rene Russo character in the film, she becomes a studio executive, right. and there's all kinds of stuff that happens. It just becomes a whole other. So all you right. have to turn it into a movie. I'm going to go back and do my homework and, and reread and rewatch. <laughs> um, how has movie making, and we'll talk about this more as, uh, when it comes to TV and books as well, how has that changed since you got into the business? Uh, the economics are different. Uh, is the process fundamentally different, or is it the same as when you were breaking in? The economics are different, so the process is different. So movies now cost a huge amount of money to market. So a, a low amount of money, you may make a movie for $10 million, but if it's a movie the studio cares about, they're going to spend over $30 million yep. to market it. You know, So the marketing costs are huge. And marketing has become sort of the church for the, for the business. So the business has changed fundamentally once it became very marketing-driven. It used to be, when I started, say, the creative side of the studio would greenlight a movie. They're going to do the Peter Kafka story. And mm. um, that, well, but everybody says that's a really interesting movie. We're going to do that. We're going to make it. And then when they're done making it, then it goes to the marketing people yep. who go, uh, we don't know. Uh, what do we do? How do we how do we market this? Then they have to figure out how to market it. Now, before a movie's green lit in the room, the people green lighting the movie are the head of marketing. It's not just the the creative side. They only have one voice, and everybody has a voice, but no say. Um, so there's the creative side, there's the marketing side, there used to be the DVD side when that was a market, now right. it's the foreign side. And also the foreign business, when I was first doing this in the early 80s, was a small fraction of the overall movie business. Now it is the part of the movie. You can have a movie that bombs here and be huge overseas, and next thing you know they're making a sequel. And you're going, wait, I thought that movie was a disaster. Well, it did great, great overseas. In China. Great in China, so they're going to do another one. And so that has been the biggest change, I think. And so decisions are made based on marketing. And so some studios are more marketing-driven than others. And so they're very careful, and so they're reverse-engineering movies. Now, the problem with that Disney went through this a long time ago, and then Fox until the last few years before Emma Watson and Stacey Snyder kind of took it over. Uh, they were so marketing-driven that they had a formula. 
that there were certain things that they did and that they knew they were they were everything was over tested and ever over figured out so the movies are successful for a time but then they all start to look alike and a fox movie or a disney movie back when jeff katzenberg was doing this at disney they were successful down and out in beverly hills all those movies they were making back right. then the fish out of water formula that they had and it works for a really long time or a long enough time and then it becomes the snake that eats its own tail and then there's a kind of sameness that sets in and the audience kind of feels it. And then before you know it, your brand name is sort of synonymous with, you know, shit. And so it's very, it's tricky. To, I mean, there's a logic to it, right? So the studios get bigger there and bigger and bigger bets. And of course, we're going to make comic and, books because we know, what, we know there's an audience for And them. scarier than that is that they're usually right about when they have a movie, who's going to see it, what numbers are going to show up. And they're usually able... They're, I mean, that doesn't mean they're always right, but I, I used to say they don't know what they're... They do. They're actually... It's amazing how they can kind of guess who's going to show up for the movie. But that doesn't mean that you, sh that you should use that same decision-making matrix to decide what movie gets made. Because it's tricky. Before you've made the thing, it's hard to know who's going to show up. Yep. These are big bets. People win, lose jobs on, yes. the, on, on the strength of them. Yeah. This is a lower stakes operation here. But we still have to make money, so we're going to be back in one minute after we hear from a fine advertiser. Today's show is brought to you by HostGator. Are you ready to take your website to the next level? I hope you are, because whether you're a first-time blogger or an experienced web pro, HostGator has all the tools you need to create a great-looking website or even an online store. And if you ever need a boost in hosting power, HostGator offers cloud, VPS, and dedicated server hosting can easily handle maximum visitor traffic. See what HostGator can do for your website. Right now, Recode listeners get 60% off at HostGator.com slash Recode. That's HostGator, Gator is spelled like alligator, G-A-T-O-R, dot com slash Recode. Back here with Scott Frank talking about the past, present, future of making movies and other entertainment. Um, you're now making a Netflix. What is it? Is it a movie? Is it a series? It's is a it miniseries. Miniseries. Six How many episodes? Six six hours. You're writing. You're directing. Writing and directing. Steven Soderbergh, producing. your former collaborators, producing. It's called Godless. Godless. It's a western. It sounds great. Soderbergh. He he said, "I'm done making movies." Then he started making movies again. Yes, he did. Did you think he was going to make movies again? He's done making movies the way he used to make movies. He's done going through that whole system we just talked about. Yep. He's done doing that. So he's experimenting with different formats. He's experimenting with different ways of releasing movies. He's experimenting because I think he felt what I just said, <laughs> which is that, that the marketing departments, all the people that we labeled as the enemy of art and so on are right. So that's, right. so that's his motivation for n not doing that and doing a Netflix thing doing or a something, Showtime show. He's got something. Yeah, the, the, Cinemax the, show. the Cinemax show. He can tell, find other ways to tell stories that he actually cares about and do other things. And he also, there's a part of him that likes to have fun. And so there's a lot of choices he makes because I'm, I'm really going to enjoy myself. So you're still in the system. So you're doing both. You're playing both, both I'm sides. doing a little of everything, yeah. And I don't know, if I were starting today, I wouldn't make movies. Because my most of those movies that you talked about that you like don't get made. Now. Right, so out of sight doesn't get made. Get Shorty doesn't get made. Minority Report might get made. 
Dead Again doesn't get made. They're TV shows, probably, a lot of those, or or done on television or done in some way. Right, it's the new conventional wisdom. So that mid-tier of movie has been replaced by the Netflix To a large degree. Not series. completely, but to a large degree, yeah. They're different products, though, right? I mean, yes. this is a six-hour miniseries yeah. about it's women in the West, right? So it's, 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 it's a feminist a, that's Western? A, that's a part of it, certainly, yeah. It's a, it's a, a, a big part of it is a town where all the able-bodied men have died in a mine. And now the women are kind of left on their own for a couple of years. And you know they're hiding as a young guy who's been shot, who is a kind of good bad guy, we'll call him. But his, the rest of his friends and family are looking for him and tearing up the West. And you know that's only a matter of time before they show up. We can see that in this, this fall. I hope. Good. Yes. So Netflix famously, when they came in and said, we're going to start making original stuff, we said – they said, well, you make whatever you want. We'll, we'll sort of do the math in advance and decide if it makes sense for you to make this project. Then we're not going to touch it. Is, are they holding up that end of the bargain? Is that still happening? Oh, it's the best experience I've ever had. They're definitely holding up that end. And it doesn't mean that they don't have opinions and don't have thoughts and, you know, def- and have uh, budgets and so on. You still have to, you have your, you have to be disciplined with them, but they are unbelievable to work for and were supportive and always helpful i was i was i kept waiting for the other shoe to drop yeah yeah i still wait i mean (laughs) i I know on the money side it seems like they used to sort of maybe even overpay to get people and now that's pulling back a bit well they overpay because there was no back end so you can't get residuals or profit participation because it's a closed entity so what they there's no do, DVD money. there's no DVD, there's no anything, no foreign sales. They right. kind of control everything. And their model is based on um, subscriptions. So when they decide to make something, they're making something because they hope it will bring in more subscriptions. And I'm oversimplifying, I'm yeah. sure, and they would probably wince a bit, but that's basically that's what it basically is. basically what they say. So it's hard to figure out how you, how you, you know, monetize any kind of profit participation. But you're, you're, you're making a market rate. You're comfortable. Yes, you're comfortable. They give you a market rate plus they buy out in some cases what your residuals might be and what you would call modest success. And and how do you think about sort of making a six hour series that since it's Netflix, it's going to get all dropped over a weekend? Are you thinking people are going to watch this back to back? Or are you thinking they're going to spread it out over a couple of weeks? How, how does that affect what you make? I treat it like a novel. That people are going to approach it like a novel and they'll watch it as much as they want to watch it. For some people, they may drag it out over a couple of weeks. Some people may watch the whole thing um, Friday night. Friday night. You don't know how, you know, everybody has their own kind of thing. It's what, what's great for me is it was originally a movie script. And um, I'd written it a long time ago, and it was going to be, I'd try, it was almost made several times by other directors. And in fact, Steven Soderbergh was the first person I gave it to. And ultimately, he said, you know, I don't like horses. It's <laughs> a problem when you're going to make a Western. And so we – and it, it was, like I said, it was various configurations along the way. And then finally, um, Stephen said, let's do it at HBO as a miniseries. And HBO was actually, you know, bidding on making it. And Dave said, yes, let's do it. And I figured out how to expand it, and I thought it would be kind of a reverse adaptation where I could go deeper and Uh do things I didn't have time to do. And then Netflix stepped in and said, we want a Western. And then they just kind of... They snapped it up for HBO. Made me an offer I couldn't refuse. So it's not a a project that HBO discarded. No. There's a bunch of those running around as well. No, no, no. So interesting. So, I mean, this is... We overused the word golden age, but I think for someone like you in particular, right, you have... 
you can't get your movies, you can't get your middle tier movies made anymore, but you've got Netflix competing with HBO, Hulu now, Hulu, Amazon. Do you think, boy, there's a limited window here and I got to make as much as I can while this exists? Or do you think there's going to be some version of this for the next 20 years and I just got to go when I'm going to go? <laughs> well, I got to say, I've spent 30 years realizing I'm, I'm done next year. So I'm always... There's always thinking, a clock ticking. No matter what's happening in the business, I'm always thinking low-hanging fruit <laughs> versus what do I really want to do? And sometimes I err too far on one side or the other. I, it's hard to say. I mean, there are a lot of shows right now. I think someone said 500 some odd shows or it's an insane amount. Right. I don't know if you can keep that up. I don't know what's going to happen. I do know that my friends who do what I do, they're all looking at television to do different kinds of stories because um, if you're working in the movies, you're doing big, giant comic book Star Wars or broad comedies or family stuff, you yep. know, and that's some of that stuff is pretty terrific. Um, but at the same time, if you want to do anything other than those things, it's harder to do it in the movies. And by the way, doesn't mean that studios aren't still developing that mid range. Right. They're doing a ton of that. They really are. It's just it's 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 a harder thing for them to sell. But meantime, good for you. Good for me. Yes, and endless supply. Of <laughs> good great for stuff people who are trying to. Fi- you can find something if you want to watch. A superhero movie, you can go do that if you want to watch The Fall or, or you know, Luther or... <laughs> Apple wants to get Peaky into this Blinders. business. They want to start spending money on this stuff. Everybody wants to spend. It's fantastic. Yeah. So I'm holding up your book, which no one can see, but I'm, I'm holding it. It's in paperback. Shaker came out last year, right? Yes. Hardback. Very Elmore Leonardish. It's your first novel. <laughs> uh, was Elmore Leonard in your head while you were writing this? I, I think inescapably, probably. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what made you decide to write a novel 30 years into a successful screenwriting well, career? Well, I actually started it early on in my career. I started in the early 90s, even before I'd adapted any Elmore Leonard, I think. And I was 31 or 32, and, and I had always wanted to write books. And I started it, and I wrote close to 100 pages of it. And could never quite get back to it. For whatever reason, I had three kids pretty close together and pretty fast and just had to had a life that was hard to go back and work on something that wasn't paying the bills. Yeah. So it just sort of sat there. And then um, about four years ago, right before I started shooting A Walk Among the Tombstones, it was the summer, and uh, I, was, I found the manuscript. And I looked at it, and there were, you know, those 190, I don't remember what it was, 90 pages, something like that. And I read them. And, you know, you have these moments as a writer where you look at stuff and you go, well, who wrote that? And sometimes it's embarrassing because it looks like a high school term paper. And you go, and that, I read those 90 pages and I thought, wow, what happened to that guy? Because that's really sad. (laughs) To to the character. No, to me as a writer. Oh, to you, the guy who wanted to do it. Yeah, I'm thinking, those... Those pages, it wasn't the high school term paper, it was the opposite. It's like, what have you done to yourself as a writer? Because th- when you were 32 versus, you know, 52 or whatever I was at the time, you were m- way more interesting. And this is, this is. Oh, far- this wasn't you looking back and going, I, I didn't know what I was doing. That was no. you looking back and going, I, 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 I got off the cool. tracks somewhere. Okay. I just really, it wasn't even that I thought it was a great book. I just thought, okay. Why did you stop trying to write a book? And you and I would say all the time, I need to get back to my book. I need to this. And, you know, creative people have this happen all the time before they know what their life is done. Yeah. And so I sent it to a friend of mine who was an editor at Random House. And I said, either I throw this away or I finish it. I'll do whatever you tell me. But if I throw it away, I'm going to start a new book. I, want, I need to do this. 
And he called me and he said, don't throw it away. Don't throw it away. Finish it. And he said, and I, I want us to publish it. It's very cool. It's, 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 I'm glad you did. It's a great read. I mean, um, there's no more new Elmore Leonard coming out, so this, this satisfied <laughs> an itch for me. Uh, and, and like Elmore Leonard, it looks deceptively simple. The writing is clean and easy to process, but there's, you do tricky, cool stuff there. There's a scene there where there's a cop talking to a convict or a suspected convict or a criminal. He's in the hospital. It's told her point of view, and she's talking, and then you hear what's in her head, and then all of a sudden it slips into his perspective. Mm-hmm. And it's really sneaky how you do it. You don't announce it, and then you Mm-mm. go back to like, that's cool. Scott had fun there. I had a very good time. <laughs> and do you want to do more of these? I'd love to do more. Yeah. I'd love to do more. Um, it's a question of just time, time money, yeah. all those things. Time more than anything. But I really, I spent a year, I shot a TV pilot that didn't happen, and I suddenly was faced with a lot of empty time and that's when i decided to write it i thought i have nothing to do i'm not going to take another job i'm just gonna work on the book and it was it was about a year and it was easily the happiest year of writing i've ever had there's some media critique in here at least what reads like a media yeah. critique there's a lot of reference to people capturing stuff on cell phones before they call cops there's a lot of people talk about people who are fake gangsters but spend most of their time on youtube yes um, was that something that it was in your head that you wanted to get out or is it just came with the book Came with the book. The first 90 pages, which were the whole setup I wrote a long time ago, all of that stuff. It was pre-cell phone. It was 92, 93 something. And then by the time I came back to the book, you know, all that stuff was happening. And I thought, and, and by the way, when I sold the book, I sold it. It was written for the Northridge earthquake. It was in period. And they said... We should talk about this is a, a gangster, hard-boiled detective, yeah. mystery past, and it's set set after a big... In the un- week or two after an, LA, an earthquake in yes. L.A. And all the, the present tense. But. Present tense, all the criminal shenanigans that go on in that, right. in that couple of weeks. And Sonny Mehta, the head of Knopf, said to me, why are you doing... Why don't you do it in the present day? I go, ah, oh, because then you have to deal with cell phones. And I hate dealing with cell phones in movies because it always feels like they're cheating and everything happens on the... And, he said, well, just think about it. And I thought there might be a way to satirize all of that stuff and do it in a way Oh, so it's very fun. deliberate. Okay, yeah. cool. That's great. It is funny. Like, cell phones wreck the plots of pretty much any movie you go back and work. You could look yeah. at now because it yeah. would just, the movie would stop. Watch would any episode somebody. of 24, you know? He'll get the blueprints to the bathroom down the hall downloaded to his cell phone. Right, or, or, or <laughs> right, any, anything where there's some kind of yeah. mix-up or you just call it's the person the and resolve yeah. it. Yeah. Google <laughs> will text it. Makes, for, makes for, for much less interesting uh, stories. Uh, you know, I don't think I gave uh, Walk Among Tombstones enough credit because we were talking about before we started recording. So is that your first movie you directed? No, I directed a movie called The Lookout in 2007. Okay. With um, Joe Gordon-Levitt and Jeff Daniels. I do not know that one. And nope, yeah, well, very few right. people do. <laughs> so I was going to praise Walk Among Tombstones. This looks like there was a string of Liam Neeson movies where it looked like Liam Neeson was playing the same hard-bitten cop. Yeah. Three-time loser, et cetera. So, and I guess he is in this case, too. But this one's great. Thank you. Um, so you should go see it. Um, was this something where you wanted to work with Liam Neeson or he came to you or how did it come about? No, we came to him definitely. And it was, again, that was written a long time ago and almost made with Harrison Ford and various other actors and directors had come in and out of it over the years. And finally, a director had just, and at one point, Angelina Jolie wanted to play the Liam Neeson part, which was huh. really interesting. Um, but huh. it had just fallen apart again with whatever director at the time. And... My agent said to me, "Why don't you direct it? You're not. What are you doing right now? Why don't you direct? Why don't you direct it?" And I'd never written it to direct it, which was interesting, and it's how I ended up directing The Lookout, which which was a great experience for me. And I thought, well, maybe I should do it. 
And so let's just see if if it'll if we can hold it together. And we did, and I ended up ended up doing it. Pop culture nerd question for you. There's a scene I was talking to you about beforehand um, where you use the song Atlantis. Yeah, the Donovan song. Donovan song. But if you don't know that song, you do know that song because it's featured famously Goodfellas. in Goodfellas. The, they kill Billy Bats, right? Yep. In the, in the bar. And it's, it's an iconic scene. So you're making a movie 20 years later. Yep. And you say, I want to use that same music. I understand that everyone who's going to watch this movie has seen the Scorsese movie. Yep. Well, what's, what's the thought process? The thought process is it's the perfect song for the scene, and I'm just going to do it. And You're just going to do it. I've and always had that in my head. I'm just going to do it. And the fact that I'm going to stop and think about Goodfellas, you don't care? Don't care. Awesome. Good for you. Don't care. I, I like just it. thought, we'll see what happens, but I just, it's the, it, I feel like the scene is so disturbing in its own right and different from the other that let's see what happens. Okay, so we've I've praised your movies, your books, Thank your you. Netflix wow. show. Is I'm there is there is there a one man show I'm missing? Nope, not no, not yet. We're good. So Logan, yes. Now go see that now. Netflix show this fall. Hopefully, hopefully. Well, you never know when they're going to release things. So I you think. make it, you hand it to them, and then I hand it to them in July, program. August, and then they'll decide when they're gonna. Then they're gonna. Do they sit on things for a long time? Doesn't seem. I like. don't think so. I don't think so. But they have to have time to sell it. Sell it, and then generally they'll usually they put it out like on a weird weekend where yes. I think everyone's going to be home. <laughs> yes, like exactly. Thanksgiving Day exactly. weekend or whatever that is. Exactly. So my hunch is Thanksgiving Day weekend. I hope you're right. That'd be perfect. All right, I'll be looking forward <laughs> to it. Scott Frank, thank you for coming. Thank you, Peter. Um, this was a great conversation. I hope you guys like listening to it because I liked having it. You know where to find all these things. You're listening to one right now, but just in case you need a reminder, there's Spotify, SoundCloud, iTunes, Google. Don't care where you listen to it as long as you subscribe. It would be great. It's free, but subscribe anyway. Tell a friend. Thanks to our awesome sponsors, Mac Weldon, Amazon Web Services, and HostGator. And thanks to Digital Media, who sells all those ads and distributes this show to you for free. What a deal. And one other thing for you guys. Um, we just finished Code Media, our really fun conference where we talk about media and technology, just like this podcast. But we do it uh, for a crowd that pays literally thousands of dollars in a very nice hotel in California. So you missed that. But the good news is you can hear almost all of those, or I think all the interviews we did, um, over at Recode Replay. We talk to people like Eddie Q, who runs media for Apple, Marty Barron, the editor of the Washington Post. Those are all great interviews. You should go listen to them now or whenever you want to over at Recode Replay. I'm back next week. See you then.